A word to the children this morning and to all God's children as we prepare to listen to the text, another of Jesus' Beatitudes, teaching us how to live right side up in an upside down world. Boys and girls, just imagine you get up some morning and you really don't feel well. You just say to your mom or dad, I don't feel so good today, and I don't know what's wrong. Chances are, the first thing they'll do is find the thermometer. They don't make them the way they did when I was a kid, bending and rubber, but it still works, and if you put one under your tongue, and your temperature is any more than 98.6, they'll know something. They may not know what it is, but some kind of infection is going on inside where you can't see it. You don't look any different, but you feel different. Could be an ear infection, could be a throat infection, could be an infection in your nasal passages behind your eyes could be an infection somewhere else. There are medications that could be given, maybe ibuprofen or Tylenol or something like that to maybe bring the fever down and make it feel a little better. But if it doesn't go away, you'll have to go to the doctor. And if you go to the doctor, the first thing they'll do when you come in the office is take your temperature again. A thermometer will help them decide what kind of thing went wrong inside and what can be done to make it right again so you feel better. You all knew that, but I wanted to remind you of it because we need to think about the same thing in a slightly different way and consider this book, God's Thermometer. You don't feel quite right inside, but it's not a pain. It's not a fever you can feel on your forehead. It's a worry or a fear or some guilt or some anger or something else that's going on that you know shouldn't be. And God's word is like a thermometer telling us the way it ought to be so we can figure out what's wrong when it isn't that way. But the book itself doesn't heal us, and there's no pill you can take to make it better. At this point, we go to God in prayer and say, Lord, give me the medicine of your spirit to work inside me, taking away that fear, taking away that guilt, taking away that worry, taking away that anger, or whatever it is that shouldn't be there until my heart, which is the center of me, is pure and clean and healthy again. That's not only a children's message, but God's word to us all this morning. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. A 
On January 13, 1992, Fortune magazine carried an article entitled, The Biggest Business Goofs of 1991. There were several that they detailed, and there have been many since then that perhaps you could detail, but this particular one seems to me a kind of a parable of this beatitude and a parable for us all this morning. Here's how it went. It seems that AT&T made an agreement with Con Edison in New York, and the agreement was basically this. When the power grid had two big demands on it, AT&T would withdraw some of its claim for power and disconnect some of its facilities and at the same moment rely on some of its own internal generators at the 33 Thomas Street station to help Con Ed supply power to others who needed it. On September 17, 1991, AT&T made good on its promise. The power demand was too great, facilities were unplugged, but when the generators at the 33 Thomas Street station kicked in, they kicked out all of what were called the vital rectifiers that controlled four and a half million international phone calls, 470,000 domestic phone calls, 1,174 domestic flights carrying 85,000 passengers, and all of the communications between the air traffic controllers at LaGuardia, JFK, and Newark airports simultaneously. The alarms at the 33 Thomas Street station rang for six hours, and nobody did a thing. Because all the employees at 33 Thomas Street were at a seminar that day, and the seminar, how to handle emergencies. It is kind of funny, but it is also vitally important for us to think about. And to think of it as a kind of a parable that says to us, to come here or wherever it is, we listen to the vitally important words of God and to struggle to understand them and apply them and then to go from wherever we are to home and not implement them. It's like studying how to handle an emergency and not handling the emergency. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Or as Eugene Peterson put it, you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right, then you can see God in the outside world. This is not a complicated blessing. It is troublingly simple. 
It is unavoidably personal, and it is incredibly relevant. Martin Luther put it bluntly, Christ wants to have the heart pure. Though outwardly the person may be a drudge in the kitchen, sooty and grimy, doing all sorts of dirty work. Though a common laborer, a shoemaker, or a blacksmith may be dirty or sooty or may smell because he's covered with dirt and pitch, and although he stinks outwardly, inwardly he is pure incense before God because he ponders the word of God in his heart and obeys it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure? It's a simple, common word in the Greek language. And the most common use of it was to refer to the act of washing your clothes. Not in an electric washing machine, but down by the river on a rock. But pounding the dirt out, getting rid of soil and stains and whatever shouldn't have been there until it was pure. It also referred to the practice of winnowing grain, putting it on a screen and tossing it in the air and catching it again while the chaff, what you didn't want, what you shouldn't eat, what wasn't supposed to be there anymore, blew away. The word from which our word pure comes in Greek, is a word that is related to our English word catharsis. It also meant a purging of the system, whatever the system was that was being addressed, of all that didn't belong there. And to keep something pure was to make sure it didn't get diluted. Don't dilute wine. Don't dilute milk. Keep it pure. Don't dilute metal by adding an alloy to it. Keep it pure. Now that gives you a bit of an idea of what Jesus was talking about when he said, we need to be pure in heart. But it doesn't go all the way. Jesus was almost certainly thinking about the 24th Psalm when he spoke this beatitude. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? That is essentially to say, who, who can come into the presence of God? Who can stand before God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, neither the psalmist nor Jesus meant, just make sure you wash your hands before you come into the presence of God. Jesus and David went inside a person beyond the hands, all the way to the heart, to our thoughts, to our attitudes, to our motives. Take a look at them. One commentator said, in the Beatitudes, Jesus does not bless persons at their hands so much as he blesses them at their heart. Heart in Hebrew psychology is literally the human center, the home of personal feeling, willing, and thinking. We can translate pure in heart as clear at center. 
meaning that the personal center is directed toward God. Are your motives pure? When you engage in an activity in the church, assume a responsibility, take on some task, do you do it purely out of love for God? Or hoping someone will see you doing it and admire you? When you worship here or at home or wherever, do you do that to come closer to God? Or because it makes you look better if you do? When you pray, when you read the Bible, when you have a program of personal devotions, is it to cultivate your relationship with God or to avoid feeling guilty for not doing so? The purity toward which Jesus is pointing us is a purity down inside that recognizes with David, surely you desire truth in the inner parts where only you and God know what's going on at the center, the human center, as the commentator put it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts, David prayed. Not only is this intensely personal and intimate, this matter, beyond what you look like and what you seem to be, all the way to how you feel and how you think. But it's not something that just happens either. It's hard work. Enabled by the Spirit, but not without our blood, sweat, and tears, everyone who has this hope in him, that is the hope of Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure, the Apostle John put it. It's more than keeping up appearances and looking good. And we know how hard that is and how often we fail at that. But making sure that the good we say, the good we do, the good we want to look like originates at the center. You see, the sincerity expected by the sixth beatitude is not just Somebody who gives it a shot once in a while, but somebody who wants more than anything else in life to live for God without hypocrisy and for his glory. In 1600, a Puritan rector by the name of Thomas Watson, who presided over a church in London, wrote a book called simply, The Beatitudes. And in his discussion of the sixth one, he offers a few suggestions as to how to obtain heart purity. I want to read just a sentence or two for each of some of his suggestions. Number one, look often into the Word of God. He said the Word is both a glass, by which he meant a mirror, 
to show us the spots of our souls and a laver, by which he meant a sink, to wash them away. Number two, he said, go to the bath. The bath of tears, first of all. Weep for those sins, which are so many as have passed all arithmetic. And stop at the bath of Christ's blood, too. A soul bathed in the blood of Christ is made pure. Number three, he said, get faith. Nothing can have a greater force and efficacy upon the heart to make it pure than faith. Number four, breathe in the Spirit. The Spirit of God in the heart refines and sanctifies us. It burns up the dross of sin. And number five, wait at the posts of wisdom's doors. Reverence the word preached, the word of God sucked in by faith transforms the heart into the likeness of it. And one more, pray for heart purity. Pray, create in me a clean heart, O God. Thou who biddest me give thee my heart, Lord, make my heart pure, and thou shalt have it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I ran across some interesting statistics once. These statistics are old, but I think they portray the way things are. <clears throat> it happened back in the late 60s. A survey was taken, and here's how you'll see these are old, of those who whose income was below $15,000 a year. And they were asked, do you think you've achieved the American dream? Probably won't surprise you to know that 95% of them said no. But at the same time, the survey was taken among those who made more than $50,000 a year, more than three times what the first group made, how many of you think you have achieved the American dream? 94% said they hadn't. At the same time, the number of counselors in the American Counseling Association numbered 45,000. 25 years later, it was 208,000, four and a half times more. The number of antidepressant prescriptions was seven million, but 25 years later, it was 32 million. It would seem that unhappiness and dissatisfaction grew and that the blessed lessness was simply growing. And here's the promise. If you're pure in heart, you'll see God. Oh yeah, they say, by and by in the sky when we go to heaven, if we go to heaven, but what about right now? As in previous Beatitudes, the promise is phrased in the future, not pushing it off into the distance, but underscoring the certainty of receiving it. It's not, oh, maybe someday you will see God, but you will certainly see God. 
Someone said to Helen Keller once, isn't it terrible to be blind? And she said, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two eyes and see nothing. So how do we, how, how should we see God? Let me suggest a couple of things just very briefly. Those who really want to know and serve and live for God are going to see God at work in his world. They're going to see the tracks of God, the fingerprints, the footprints of God. In things like a memory that comes back just at the right time. A friend you bump into just when you needed what that friend could give. A letter that came just at the right occasion in the mail or via email. A medical test designed to check out a known problem that discovered something else in the process that was more urgent and could be corrected. Over the years, people have come up to me on occasion and said after a sermon, you know, it was like you were following me around this week. That's just what I needed to hear. Well, I wasn't following. I didn't know that. If I did know it, I would not announce it publicly. But God did. He has seen not only and not even especially in cataclysmic events, but little things in your life and mine and around us that help us see that God is busy and active and present and visible. Those who work hard at getting to know God and live for him also, without patting themselves on the back or applauding themselves, see God more and more at work in their own lives. I see him in mine altering my motives when I never seemed to be able to do it. Making me not completely pure, but purer than I was. And I say there is no way to account for this. No other explanation for it. But that God is here and in here and I see him. And the flip side of that is, I can see God at work in you. When your behavior changes and your testimony is made known and your life is visible, and that's part of the value and the treasure of Christian community, I see God at work bringing towards completion the work he began in you. I can't resist quoting one more of that Puritan divine's paragraphs. You are but a spiritual leper till you are pure in heart. God is in love with a pure heart for he sees his own picture drawn there. This is a beauty that never fades and which makes God himself Fall in love with us. If God sees himself in us and loves it, surely we can see him in one another and love it. 
And then there is also that future sense in which we will see God on that day when we can see not just through a glass darkly, but face to face. When the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That day when we shall see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, we shall hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. In 1982, the Los Angeles Times carried the story of Anna May Penica. She was a 62-year-old woman who had been born blind and had never seen a thing. She was born, by God's grace, into a loving, encouraging family who never looked down on her or considered her less than they, and she never seemed to resent the disability she lived with and was always cheerful. But in 1981, Dr. Thomas Pettit from the Jules Stein Eye Institute at UCLA said he had developed a technique to remove the congenital cataract from one of her eyes, and she might be able to see. And he did, and she could. And now she can't wait to get up in the morning and put her glasses on and see things that for 62 years she only knew about, heard about, and could touch. How wonderful it must have been to finally be able to see what was there all the time, but her eyes didn't allow it. Well, said R. Kent Hughes, there is something that surpasses even that, and that's seeing God. Since nothing is higher than God, seeing God is logically the greatest joy one can experience. Thus, when we pass from this world and see the face of Christ, the joy of that first split second will transcend all the accumulated joys of life. It will be the highest food, the, great, good, the highest good, the greatest joy, beside which the wonderful story of Mrs. Penica's miracle fades in comparison. This is what the sixth beatitude is about, seeing God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus' word tells us how to get 2020 spiritual vision. If we want to see God, this is the greatest text. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Oh God, with eyes closed and not seeing with them right now, nevertheless, we have seen your glory and your goodness and your presence and your spirit at work within and among us. Lord, help us each day to become purer in heart and to see you in the world around us, in ourselves, in each other, and on the horizon coming again. 
a little better with each passing 